Article 2, Why the Seventh Day is the Biblical Sabbath, by Pastor Reed Benson. Most Christians rest and worship on the first day of the week. This habit has a long history behind it and is deeply embedded into the fabric of many Christian traditions. Surely it would seem that worshiping on the day we call Sunday is therefore correct and biblically defensible. Oddly, however, when we take a closer look at when Sunday worship began, it becomes clear that the practice of the first day of the week relies only on tradition and not upon scripture. By way of contrast, the biblical case for resting and worshiping on the seventh day of the week, the day we customarily call Saturday, is a straightforward and powerful argument. Furthermore, history reveals an equally lengthy minority tradition of seventh-day Sabbath practice that parallels the Sunday tradition the Roman Catholic Church gave to the Western world. An exploration of this topic must begin with Scripture, for the Bible is our fountainhead of truth. To it, we must be faithful. The Sabbath Since Creation Let's begin with the opening curtain of God's revealed word, creation. From Genesis chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, we read this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. It's plain to see that the day originally designed to be the day of rest and worship is the seventh day of the week. It is safe to presume that God did not rest because he was weary, but to establish a pattern for man to follow. In doing this, it is significant that he also blessed and sanctified this day, indicating its unique status and value as a day of not only rest, but also of honor and worship of our Creator. Thus, God set a divine precedent at the very beginning of time. We should rest and honor the seventh day of the week as God himself did. God powerfully reinforces this commandment when he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, particularly the Fourth Commandment, as recorded in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Please observe that in instructing the children of Israel that they are to rest on the seventh day, this commandment cites the example of God doing so at the conclusion of the creation week. If God rests and honors the Sabbath, so should we. The seventh-day Sabbath is a perpetual covenant with Israel. In Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17, Moses remarkably emphasized this day. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord, that doth sanctify you. Ye shall keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. Every one that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. 
Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations, for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Unpacking every element of this passage is more than is required for our purposes. The vital thought is that the seventh-day Sabbath, the day God gave to the children of Israel via Moses, is a sign of a perpetual covenant, one that was to last forever. The only way that the seventh-day Sabbath could be a sign that would last forever is if we are able to know what day the seventh day of the week is. So, do we know? Do we know what day of the week the seventh day is? Some people resist the seventh-day Sabbath by insisting that no one really knows what day of the week the seventh one is. Thus, they persist in asserting that we are at liberty to discard this divine creation precedent and choose any day that we wish. Usually, this line of reasoning is trotted out as a passionate defense of Sunday rest and worship, the first day, rather than a defense of Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. But how can someone be so set on Sunday as the proper day if no one has any idea what number of the day of the week it actually is. Is it even true that we cannot know which is the seventh day? Indeed, it is not. For those who have not studied calendar issues, you must understand two things. So the seventh day weekly cycle is a separate and distinct cycle from years and months, and it has remained unbroken since the beginning of time. Unlike years and months that require adjustments to remain in synchronization with the seasons, the weekly cycle has no such demand, and has thus been maintained through the millennia, even as empires rose and fell. A number of astronomers and chronologists readily admit this. The human race never lost the septenary, or seven-day, sequence of weekdays, and that the Sabbath of these latter times comes down to us from Adam through the ages without a single lapse. From Dr. Totten, Professor of Astronomy at Yale University. Specialists in chronology have never had the slightest doubt about the continuity of the weekly cycles since long before the Christian era. There has been no change in our calendar in past centuries that has affected in any way the cycle of the week. From James Robertson, Director, American Ephemeris, Navy Department, U.S. Naval Observatory, Washington, D.C., March 12, 1932. It can be said with assurance that not a day has been lost since creation, and all the calendar changes notwithstanding, there has been no break in the weekly cycle. Dr. Frank Jeffries, Fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society and Research Director of the Royal Observatory, Greenwich, England. The week of seven days has been in use ever since the days of the Mosaic Dispensation, and we have no reason for supposing that any irregularities have existed in the succession of weeks and their days from that time to the present. Dr. W. W. Campbell, Director of Lick Observatory, Mount Hamilton, California. The continuity of the week has crossed the centuries and all known calendars still intact. Dr. Eginitis, Director of the Observatory of Athens, Greece. After a slow drift through the centuries, using the Julian calendar, the months were getting out of synchronization with the natural seasons. So, in 1582, 
the Gregorian calendar was adopted to re-synchronize things. But even through this change, the weekly pattern was not altered. Note this. Although they dropped 10 days, Thursday, October 4th was followed by Friday, October 15th, they still preserved the weekly cycle, and thus the days of the week remained stable. The fact is simple enough. We know that our seventh day of the week, the day we usually call Saturday, is the same as the seventh day of the week known and practiced by the ancient Hebrews, the day they called the Sabbath. Now, if this is true, and it is, how did the Christian world shift to the first day of the week, the day we call Sunday? That is a key question that we shall soon answer. First, however, let's look at what example Jesus and the apostles set. Consider the examples from the New Testament. Every clear and unambiguous example of routine weekly worship that we find in the New Testament is when believers gathered on the Sabbath day. Often, but not always, this occurred in a synagogue. Some are irritated about such gatherings being in a synagogue, since modern Jewry gathers in synagogues, and we know Jews today to be utterly unchristian since they reject the person and mission of Jesus Christ, but that should not irritate us when we read scripture, for the word synagogue merely means meeting house, and is simply the New Testament equivalent of our church buildings. In the days of the apostles, folks were trying to sort out what they should think about Jesus. They continued to gather in the same buildings they always did to hear the various teachers offer opinions about Jesus from the Old Testament text that might apply. So, with that out of the way, let's look at some clear examples regarding the day of the week that folks gathered in the New Testament area. Jesus himself was a seventh-day Sabbath practitioner. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway, on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority, and not as the scribes. From Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Note this second example of Jesus also keeping the Sabbath. And he went out from thence, and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? From Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Most proponents of a first-day Sunday weekly worship gathering dismiss these examples of Jesus as irrelevant because they propose that the proper day of worship changed after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. They say it changed from the seventh day to the first day in order to better honor and memorialize that great event. Their line of reasoning is that the Old Testament law, including the Sabbath commandment, was valid until Jesus' resurrection. But from that moment forward, it was altered. This common argument has a little bit of merit on an emotional level, in that it sounds good that we want to elevate the importance of Jesus' resurrection. However, when it comes to the actual theology and textual evidence from scripture to undergird such thoughts, it is completely hollow. What is the primary reason this argument is invalid? It's simple. There are no statements anywhere in the New Testament that tell us we should transfer Sabbath observance from the seventh day to the first day. 
Let that sink into your mind. Nowhere in Scripture are we told, either explicitly or by implication, that God wants us to stop resting and worshiping on the seventh day, and start doing so on the first day of the week. It might seem to you that God would like such a change, so that we might better honor Jesus' resurrection, but that is total and complete speculation. Scripture does not say anywhere that we should do this. Furthermore, those who wish to transfer the Sabbath day to the day we call Sunday have a practical problem. From the pages of the New Testament, every single example of believers practicing weekly worship after Jesus' resurrection remains on the Sabbath day, not the first day of the week. If someone had ordered a change from Sabbath to Sunday, surely we can assume that the earliest believers would have known about it, but they did not. We must then presume that no alteration of the Sabbath commandment ever came forth. Consider now the following example. And on the Sabbath, we, Paul and Silas, went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. From Acts chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Do you see how the early believers gathered on a regular basis on the banks of a river to pray on the Sabbath? Paul and Silas knew this and went there, because at this location, on the Sabbath day, prayer was wont to be made. This plainly suggests a routine of Sabbath observance. Let's look again at Paul, the premier apostle of the New Testament church. What did he do? Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. And three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief woman not a few. From Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Note that Paul did this routinely as his manner was, and in this particular case he did so on three Sabbath days. This is powerful evidence that Paul was an observer of the seventh-day Sabbath. For those who say that Paul only did this as an evangelical effort, but really was an observer of Sunday worship, show me the evidence. Where does the New Testament tell us plainly that Paul observed the first day of the week on a regular day basis? Indeed, here is another example of Paul observing the Sabbath yet again. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them, and because he was of the same craft, he abode with them, and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded the Jews and Greeks. From Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Paul was in Corinth, and that was his habit, his custom, his pattern of life. 
he went to the synagogue every Sabbath day and did his best to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the Christ. The fact that Greeks were at a synagogue is evidence that Sabbath day worship was the custom of the early church. For Greeks would have never gone to a synagogue unless they were inclined to be interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Judeans who rejected Jesus never tried to convert non-Judeans. Only Judeans who had embraced Jesus, people like Paul, welcomed Greeks into their fellowship. It's plain to see that this synagogue was a hotbed of people who were very much interested in what Paul had to say about the teaching of Jesus. Paul was no doubt pleased to instruct them, yet he never told them to gather on Sunday, rather than the Sabbath. Looking for the mythical Sabbath transfer. At this juncture in our investigation, some readers may be indignantly thinking that indicators of Sabbath transference to Sunday have been overlooked. Are there any passages in the New Testament that show us that the commandment to rest and worship on the seventh day of the week was transferred to the first day? The short answer, as already indicated, is no. But Sunday enthusiasts have several places to which they resort. So, let's look at them. Acts chapter 7 verse 20. This is an interesting story. So, let's get the full context. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber, where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Ichikis, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep, and fell down from the third loft, and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread, and eaten, and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted. From Acts chapter 20, verses 6 through 12. There it is. The Sunday proponents insist. The disciples came together to break bread on the first day of the week, providing they assert that the Sabbath commandment was transferred to Sunday. But not so fast. Consider the context and identify the reason Luke, the author of Acts, inserted this story into the text. It's obvious that the thrust of this tale is that Paul miraculously healed a boy who was taken up dead because he fell down from the third loft after falling into a deep sleep. Luke was not telling the believers that the Sabbath commandment had been transferred. Rather, he was showing God's dynamic power exhibited through Paul. Now, for our purposes, examine the features of the timeline. Note that Paul continued his speech until midnight. This meeting was being held in the spring season, when sunset is about 6 p.m. We know this because Paul had just celebrated unleavened bread, which always falls in the spring. When did he likely start his speech then, in the morning or the evening? If it had been morning, Paul would have spoken for at least 12 hours, maybe more. That is implausible. If it had been in the evening, say 7 or 8, his speech would have been 4 or 5 hours long. That is a very long sermon probably at the very limit of most listeners, and far beyond the attentive limit of the youth who become sleepy and suffer tragedy in a crowded building. 
Such is likely the case. Now, if the meeting began on the evening of the first day, and Paul spoke until midnight, all of the action occurred on what we would call late Saturday night. After the boy recovered, Paul ate, talked some more, and left at the break of day, the day we would call Sunday morning. This was Paul's intended moment of departure all along. The morrow of verse 7. This proposed timeline makes sense. Remembering that biblical days start at sunset, and also noting that traveling in those days was arduous, and Paul would not want to travel on a day that was supposed to be his day of rest and worship. It's plain that this had to have been an evening meeting on the first day of the week, what we call Saturday night. Paul thus left and began the next leg of his journey on Sunday morning. Clearly, Paul was not a Sunday keeper if he was traveling on Sunday. The most likely timeline, thus, does not support the idea that there had been a transfer of the Sabbath commandment to the first day of the week, the day called Sunday. This was a meeting on what we would call Saturday night, complete with the expectation that Paul would leave early the next morning. Why would they meet at such a time? Because Paul was a traveling evangelist, and they wanted to spend as much time with him as possible before he had to depart. Thus, they called this special meeting. This gathering is not a precedent-setting transference of the seventh-day Sabbath to Sunday. Furthermore, consider another line of reasoning altogether. Those who argue in favor of Sabbath transfer to Sunday also believe that the biblical feasts are abolished. Yet, contrary to that, note that in Acts 20, Paul had just finished celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Philippi, in verse 6, and was busy planning to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, in verse 16. It is unreasonable to argue that the man who is trying hard to keep the biblical feasts in Acts 20 is simultaneously setting an example of discarding the biblical Sabbath in favor of a new practice. In short, we cannot reasonably use St. Paul as an example of Sabbath transference to Sunday in Acts 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Some argue that this reference to the first day of the week is evidence of Sabbath transfer to Sunday. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring you liberally into Jerusalem. From 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1-3. through 3. The background to this passage was a famine in Judea. The believers in the fledgling church at Jerusalem were suffering and Paul was the conduit to transfer funds from the churches in Greece and Galatia to them. Advocates of Sunday worship presume that since the first day is mentioned, this is proof that the first day is when these congregations worshipped. Objectively, that seems like a big stretch. One could just as easily argue that Paul instructed them to set their funds aside on the first day of the week because that was their first work day, and since people generally were paid daily in that era, they were to prioritize their Christian charity for famine-stricken brothers over other expenses. Now, while it does tell us that Paul is coming, presumably to pick up these funds, note that it does not say he is coming on the first day of the week. This passage is of no value to support the idea 
that the Sabbath commandment was transferred to the day we commonly call Sunday. Revelation 1, verse 10. John received a vision which comprises the book of Revelation. It's often presumed that this vision was given on the first day of the week, Sunday. This then proves, so the argument goes, that the Sabbath commandment was transferred to Sunday. The pertinent passage reads as follows. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. This argument rests entirely on the assumption that the Lord's day is the first day of the week. If that were true, it does not prove that the Sabbath commandment was transferred to the first day. Can God not deliver visions to his faithful on any day of the week? Are visions only possible on days that are formal days of rest and worship? At any rate, there is no biblical proof that the Lord's day is the first day of the week. There are at least two other possibilities. One is that the Lord's day is an expression equivalent to the day of the Lord found in Malachi 4 verse 5, which is what we normally think of as judgment day. This makes some sense in that the book of Revelation is filled with imagery that make us think of wrathful judgments from God and judgment day. A second possibility, one that is at least as likely, is that the Lord's day is the seventh day Sabbath. Supporting this thought, let's remember that Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. From Mark 2, verse 27 and 28. Either way, Revelation 1, verse 10 does not establish any evidence for the transference of the seventh-day Sabbath to the first day of the week, the day we commonly call Sunday. So, how was the Sabbath moved to Sunday? <clears throat> if there is no scriptural support from the New Testament that authorizes the transfer of the Sabbath commandment to the first day of the week, why do so many churches worship on Sunday? How did this happen? Who is responsible? The shift from Sabbath to Sunday was a process, not a single event or decision. Let's go back in time to the 2nd century and discover how this all began. The first two generations of Christians rested and worshipped on the seventh day of the week. We've reviewed the most salient New Testament evidence that pertains to this topic, and this is most certainly true. But forces were at work that created new tension between Judeans and non-Judeans in the Roman Empire. Most people are aware of the Jewish revolt that began in AD 68, and culminated in AD 70, with Titus's destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple complex. The historian Josephus documents this event in considerable detail explaining how the Roman government and most non-Judean inhabitants of the Roman Empire never looked at Judeans the same again. What is less discussed is the Second Judean Revolt of AD 135. It was not as well organized, so the Romans were able to crush their uprising rather quickly. But since it followed rather quickly after the tremendous struggle in AD 70, the general attitude of most people in the empire was something like, not again, what is going on with these people? Can't they behave themselves like the rest of us? The Roman government's response was extreme 
the city of Jerusalem was razed to the ground, and reminiscent of Carthage, the dirt in the immediate vicinity was plowed with salt to make the location uninhabitable, or so it was thought. A new city was constructed a few miles away, Elia Capitolina. New laws were promulgated against the old Judean faith, the Old Testament-style worship of Jehovah, and against all Judeans who were still alive anywhere in the empire. None of this targeted Christians. They were still too small a sect to view as a significant threat to the central Roman government, at least at this moment in time. However, it did create a new dynamic that indirectly affected Christians and is relevant to our topic. The transference of the Sabbath to the first day of the week, after the Second Judean Revolt in AD 135, Greek and Roman Christians wanted to put distance between themselves and the non-Christian Judeans, who had just been crushed. No one anywhere wanted to be accidentally identified as one of those Judeans who had been a part of the recent rebellion. And because early Christians worshipped and rested on the seventh day of the week, confusing them with this rebellious Judeans was easy to do. Thus began the first motivation of Christians to consider a different day for rest and worship. Sunday was the obvious alternative to consider for several reasons. First, Sunday was convenient because other religious traditions took their day of rest on the first day of the week. Apollo was popular with many pagan Greeks and Romans, and as the sun god, his day was already favored. Similarly, a new religious stream was entering the Roman Empire from the east, Mithraism, from Persia, the worship of Mithras, the god of sun and light. He was becoming popular with soldiers who liked some of his masculine rituals. It so happened that the day of rest for Mithraism was also Sunday, the first day of the week. It thus became easy for Christians to justify, for practical reasons, a shift to the first day of the week. In this one action, it would differentiate them from the now highly distrusted Judeans, who still worshipped on the seventh day, and also conveniently lit upon a day of the week that was already a non-work day for many other people in the empire. Second, several early church leaders were busy creating theological justifications for the shift. Known as a theology of Sunday, the second and third centuries witnessed a proliferation of this kind of thinking. It is including calling Jesus the son of justice, and calling Sunday the eighth day, a new economy, and a new life. And of course, the notion was stressed that Christians can better honor the resurrection of Jesus from the dead by resting and worshiping on the day of the week on which this historic event occurred, the first day. Who taught this theology of Sunday? Justin Martyr, Clement, and the most influential, Origen, from the city of Alexandria, Egypt. Christianity in the early centuries was not a completely unified faith. Different congregations in different cities were not tightly knit together and did not all exercise the same practices. The leaders of these various churches, usually called bishops, sometimes held opinions that were distinct from one another. While it would be an overstatement to say that this created a lot of confusion, because they often did dialogue with one another, and not infrequently resolved their disputes, the early church was not perfectly homogenous. Regarding the proper day of rest and worship, there was definitely some difference of opinion. Many congregations, especially in the Latin-speaking western half of the empire, transitioned rapidly to Sunday, including the important congregation at the center of things, Rome. 
but the Greek-speaking East retained the seventh-day Sabbath for much longer. It became associated with the Cortodeciman movement, literally meaning fourteeners, that wished to retain the old manner of celebrating Passover on the fourteenth day of the first Hebrew month, rather than shifting Easter to Sunday. As the years passed, the issue of weekly rest and worship continued to be a significant point of contention. It rapidly became a political issue as Christianity continued to grow in popularity. They reached a key moment in AD 316, when the bishop of the large congregation in Rome, Sylvester I, decided it was time to flex his muscles and compel unity. Christianity had only recently been legalized, and winds of change were in the air. For well over a century, the bishops of Rome had been insisting that they were the final spiritual authorities for Christians everywhere, and Sylvester was eager to prove it. He declared that all Christians throughout the world were to rest and worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, or else suffer excommunication. This was a heavy-handed approach, and it achieved mixed results. Some churches yielded and shifted to Sunday. Others indignantly refused to abandon the seventh-day Sabbath. However, it was not long before another decisive step was taken, this time by a politician. Constantine the Great, the emperor who made Christianity legal and also declared himself to be a follower of Christ, was extremely eager to unify the various strands of Christian practice and make his empire more harmonious. He called a church council in Nicaea in AD 325, and many issues needed to be resolved. Most abstract theological debates about the nature and person of Jesus Christ. He did not seem to care what the results of this general council were, but he absolutely wanted a spirit of unity to emerge from this great meeting of bishops. The most significant result of this council was the emergence of a statement of faith that is today commonly called the Nicene Creed. However, for our purposes in this discussion, another declaration came from the Council of Nicaea. With Constantine's endorsement, a majority of bishops agreed that a declaration should be made stating that the first day of the week, Sunday, would be the proper day for all Christians everywhere to rest and worship. Again, this did not end all debate and create absolute unity, but the tide in favor of Sunday became quite strong. After Nicaea, there were even fewer congregations and bishops that continued to rest and worship on the Seventh-day Sabbath. In the West, the power of the Bishop of Rome continued to consolidate. By the 6th century, the Roman bishop was styling himself as the Pope. The Roman Catholic Church as we think of it today was beginning to emerge. With the passing of time, popes continued to introduce changes in doctrine and practice on their own authority with little to no biblical support. Shifting the fourth commandment from the seventh day to the first day set a critical precedent that the papacy, seated in Rome, had capitalized on for centuries to accrue power and influence. Practicing the seventh-day Sabbath does not disappear. Despite the tremendous power and wealth that the Roman Catholic Church developed, seventh-day Sabbath congregations did not completely evaporate. The practice did not survive in the metropolitan regions of Europe, but did continue in areas that were outside the mainstream of social and economic concourse. One of the most interesting religious traditions of the Christian West that maintained a long history of Seventh-day Sabbath observance 
was a sect that is best known as the Waldenses. Most of these congregations were located in the mountainous alpine valleys that lie on the border region of what is now France and Italy. The origin of the Waldenses as a Christian sect distinct from the Roman Catholic Church can be traced back to the 8th century, a time when the Latin Vulgate Bible was being pressed upon European Christians. The Waldenses stubbornly refused to leave off the use of the old Italic version of the Bible. They obtained the nickname Waldenses from one of their 12th century leaders, a charismatic man named Peter Waldo. By this time, the Roman Catholic Church was approaching its apex of power, and the followers of Peter Waldo were especially targeted as heretics. The next 200 years witnessed organized military expeditions meant to stamp out these troublesome folks, but the rugged mountains always gave them a defensive edge. Thus, they survived right up to the 16th century and the outbreak of the Protestant Reformation. What is useful to us is this singular point. From their earliest times until the 16th century, nearly a thousand years, this Christian sect was devoted to the Seventh-day Sabbath. Their practice of resting and worshiping on the seventh day, rather than Sunday, was a major thorn in the flesh to the Roman Catholic Church. Since they denied the authority of the Roman Catholic Church to transfer the day of rest and worship, they were thus a symbol of defiance. The 16th century ushered in enormous religious changes. The Protestant Reformation challenged the authority of the Roman Catholic Church on a variety of practical and theological fronts, and the Waldenses, as a distinct sect, disappeared. They were simply subsumed and absorbed into the large stream of Protestants that were thumbing their nose at the Pope and his Roman Church hierarchy. The Sabbath day issue was not one of the primary battles of the Protestant Reformation. Other vital doctrines were hotly debated. While some Protestant leaders were considering a reversion to a Seventh-day Sabbath, an old tension re-emerged that prevented them from taking that step. They did not want to be associated with Jewry, who of course worshipped on the seventh day, and refused to recognize Jesus as divine. One of the most well-known of the Protestant era statements of belief was the Augsburg Confession of 1530. In this document, the Lutherans tacitly acknowledged that the seventh day was the true Sabbath. They did so not because they were planning to return to the seventh day, but to refute the idea that any bishop had the authority to change the day of worship as the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, claimed that he had the right to do. The salient portion of the Augsburg Confession reads, They, the Roman Catholics, say that the Sabbath day was changed into the Lord's day, although this seems to be contrary to the Ten Commandments. There is no example they make so much of as this changing of the Sabbath day. The power of the church is very great, they say, since it has done away with one of the Ten Commandments. But on this subject, we have taught, as has been shown in paragraph 23 and article 23, paragraph 24, that bishops have no power to make any decree that is contrary to the gospel. Augsburg Confession, article 28, paragraphs 33 through 34. A return to scripture. Our final authority for all things must be the Bible. To it, we should always revert and submit ourselves. Whatever traditions we are most comfortable with is not the standard. 
While traditions are not necessarily our enemy, they sometimes can be obstacles to doing what is right and true. The practice of resting and worshipping on the seventh day is not the best choice because the Walzet Dunzes did it, or the Augsburg Lutherans almost did, or because we were raised to. Neither is it the right practice because the Roman Catholics were against it. We do not want to develop our theology or habits as a matter of reaction. The seventh-day Sabbath is the correct way to live your life because it is biblical. God established it as a perpetual covenant. Jesus Christ rested and worshipped on the seventh day. Paul and the disciples did as well. It is the scriptural choice. That is precisely why you and I should keep the Sabbath day holy.